Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a godly Christian man sitting in a brothel. And he's dressed as a woman. And he's doing it for the glory of God. Well, how does that work? This happened about 1,700 years ago. It was the time of the Diocletian persecutions, the early 300s. These were the last persecutions of the Christians in the Roman Empire. They were the most cruel persecutions that the church experienced before the empire bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this time of persecution, young unmarried Christian women, if they refused to sacrifice to the gods of the state, they were sent sometimes to their death, but sometimes to the brothels. And in this case, Theodora, even though she was a young woman from a rich and influential family in the city, she was not spared. She refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods, and she was sent to the brothels. And one of her brothers in the Lord, by the name of Didymus, wanted to save her from humiliation. Dressed as a soldier, we don't know if he was a soldier or not, but dressed as a soldier, he pushed past the youths of the city who were arguing about who would be the first to humiliate Theodora. Didymus went into that room where she was, exchanged clothes with her, and she escaped dressed as a Roman soldier, while Didymus, dressed in her clothes, waited to be discovered and to be punished. And he was sentenced to death. He laid down his life for his sister in Christ to preserve her honor. And when Theodora found out that her brother in Christ was sentenced to death, she rushed to the judge and she pled that she might be executed instead of him. And so the judge ordered that they both be executed, and they entered into glory together. Now, what would possess people to do such things? The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is a readiness to give up everything, even life itself. And that love that the believers had for one another in the Roman Empire in the 300s made such an impression on the Romans, that it was a significant factor in breaking the power of the godless Roman state and bringing about the miracle of the Roman Empire submitting to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, why were Didymus and Theodora so ready to lay down their lives for one another? The answer is in our text. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, the context in which the apostle says this is the context of that great antithesis, that great opposition that we see in the world and in the scriptures since the fall. The opposition between darkness and light. The opposition between hate and love. That opposition of which we sang earlier in Psalm 36. That on the one hand, you have the wicked who are sneering at what is good, who are unrelenting in malice, who are plotting deceit, who are walking on crooked paths. And on the other side, you have those who walk in the faithfulness and love of God. And John has just reminded us of that great conflict between light and darkness as he referred us to the very beginning right after the fall as that conflict was manifest in Cain murdering his brother, the darkness, trying to overcome the light. And that is the world in which we still live, that world in which that great battle between the two kingdoms continues. And you are either in the one camp or the other. There is no neutrality. You either die in sin or you live in Christ. You either die in hate or you live in love. And there's such a powerful difference between those two ways of being because sin takes, but Christ gives. Sin hates, but Christ loves. Sin kills, but Christ makes alive. And when we put it that way, we think how stupid it is, right? That we ever sin. Why would we do that? When we know the love of God in Christ. Now some of the older people here might remember that song, I want to know what love is. And there are all kinds of songs out there in poetry and in and, and, and culture that are asking that question, but asking it in such a trite and superficial and fleeting way, uh, uh, describing it and thinking of it as a, a fleeting emotion fueled by lust or self-interest. That's the ersatz, the pseudo-superficial so-called love that the world talks about and sings about and pursues. But the gospel comes to us this morning and God speaks to us from heaven and he says, by this we know real love. And in the Greek language, the word love has the article. By this we know the love. This is not just any love. This is not just one kind of love, but this is the love which is above every other love, the very definition of what love is. 
This is the perfect demonstration, manifestation, and example of love. That Christ laid down his life for us. Now, if you're a good, solid, reformed believer, maybe you got a little uncomfortable when I use the word example. In the title of the sermon, Love's Example, that Christ's laid down his life for us is an example. And your theological antennae are kind of perking up here. And if they are, good for you. They should be. There's a good reason why we should be very uncomfortable about talking about the death of Christ as the great example, because the kingdom of darkness, the lying liberal theologians, they talk about Christ's death on the cross as only an example. They hate the doctrine of Scripture of the substitutionary death of Christ, that he actually did something on the cross. But they talk about the cross as, as being God saying to us, look how much I love you. I'm willing to suffer so much for you. I really like you. This is, these are the lengths to which I'm really uh, willing to go to show how much I love you. And that way of looking at the cross is merely an example. Guts the gospel. It takes away the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is substitutionary atonement that Christ died in our place as our substitute, that his death was not just an example, but it was a real payment for sin. But now look how John ties example to exactly that. John ties example to the substitutionary atonement because he says, by this we know love, the love, that he laid down his life for us. And the word used there in Greek, for us, is, is a word which gives us the understanding of in our place. That he died in our place as our substitute. And if we're not quite sure about that, we can just look in the next chapter at verse 10 of chapter 4, where John repeats himself somewhat. We see the two elements of our text right there in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. And this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that parallels the first part of our, of our text. His son is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And our text puts it this way. He laid down his life for us. And then verse 12, or sorry, verse 11 of chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the second part of our text. And so it's clear that John is not just not talking about the cross as just an example, but rather as the highest manifestation of the highest love that exists. That Christ laid aside his majesty and glory. He laid aside the full manifestation and exercise of his divine power. He embraced poverty 
humiliation, pain, suffering, mocking, ridicule, injustice, beatings, torture. And he did it for you. He did it because he loves you. And finally, for you, brother, for you, sister, he laid down his life. He made the supreme sacrifice. Christ lived in love. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave up everything until there was nothing left to give. And he did it for you. Now in the Greek language, the apostle, the Holy Spirit draws our attention to that because this is the literal order of the verse. There in verse 16. By this we know love, that he for us laid down his life. That for us is in an emphatic position in the verse. This is the supreme example of love. It is the defining example of what love is. And it is rooted in the very character of God. Love gives. And that begins in eternity. The Son is begotten through the self-giving of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the self-giving of the Father and of the Son. The Holy Trinity lives in eternal, pure, giving love in communion within itself, within the Trinity. And Christ gives himself for us because God is love. And love gives. Love gives everything. Love holds nothing back. Love gives itself for the other. Now we've just remembered on Friday, Remembrance Day, the supreme sacrifice of those who died for our freedom. And brave men and women gave their lives for family, for community, for country. And this is a glorious thing, worthy of great respect and great honor. The Lord Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that, that he laid down his life for his friends. And we thank God for that great supreme sacrifice that many made so that we can live in freedom and worship in freedom. And that's why after the service this morning, we'll sing the national anthem as we praise God for working through those brave people who sacrifice themselves for us. But Jesus said, no greater love has man than this, that he, that he laid down his life for his friends. No greater love amongst mere humans. But the greatness of divine love, the divine love of God in Christ is this, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. This greatest example of true love demands something from us. And that's in the second part of the verse. 
We've seen love's example. We move to love's demand. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, if you're a good, solid, reformed believer, your theological antennae are, are perking up. Love demands. Wait a minute. And, and this is good. You should be suspicious when the pastor starts talking about, we have to do this, and we ought to do this, we must do this. We've got to be very, very careful of legalism. Legalism is not the, is not the gospel. Well, this is a demand which is right here in the Spirit-inspired text. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And this ought doesn't have to do with legalism. You've got to do a bunch of things to please God. But it has to do with being who you are. It's like saying, well, an apple tree ought to produce apples, not sour grapes. That's not legalism. That's just recognizing that an apple tree should be an apple tree. And so the apostle is saying here that if you're a Christian, you need to be who you are. You need to do what Christians do. It's not an option. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when the spirit of Christ dwells richly in me, then I will have the mind of Christ. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. True conversion, true repentance, true faith is to receive the word and the joy of the Holy Spirit and imitate Christ, imitate the Lord. If we are in Christ, this demands that we think with the mind of Christ, that we live in the life of Christ, that we love with the life of Christ. And what does that mean? Well, God has shown us a radical love, a love which gives and gives, and gives until it has given all. And God now comes to us and says, you do the same thing. You be like that. In the power of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, you live a life of radical love, a love which gives and gives and gives and gives until it has given all. What does the Holy Spirit instruct us this morning? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God is not using euphemisms here. God is not using hyperbole here. God is not exaggerating. God means what he says. And what he says is this. If I am truly a Christian, I must be ready and willing to die for you, my brother and my sister. We must be ready and willing to give our lives to die, not just for close family, not just for friends, not just for the people we get along with really well, not just with the people that agree with us, but the love of Christ compels us to say, brother, sister, 
Maybe we disagree strongly on this or on that. In fact, there are some things, maybe many things about you that frustrate me or that I find really irritating. Maybe I even feel hurt or offended by you. But you are my brother. You are my sister. And I love you. And I am literally prepared to give up my life for you, to suffer for you, to die for you. I will give up everything, including my life itself, for you. Not to cover up your sin, but to love you in Christ. This is the demand of love. Love does not say, you have to think how I want you to think. You have to do what I want you to do. You have to act like I want you to act, and then I will love you. No. The demand of love is not that we demand things from one another. The demand of love is that we give. We give everything. We give ourselves for the other. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us. Because the love of Christ has transformed us. Because Christ is in us. That's one reason. Christ has changed us. But there's another reason. And that is this, that our brother, that our sister has been loved by Christ. And we look at our brother, we look at our sister, and we say, Christ gave up everything for you. And if Christ gave his life for you, how can I refuse to do any less? If Christ has set his love upon you, if Christ's love has made you precious in God's eyes, then I must love you too. How can I dismiss as worthless what Christ has made precious? Child of God, have you considered the cost of being a member of the body of Christ. This is not a spiritual Walmart where each one of us comes on a weekly basis to stock up on spiritual goods for his own benefit and consumption. And if we happen to meet one another at the checkout, we exchange some polite pleasantries. That's not what the church is. The church is a communion knit together with a love stronger than death, a body filled with the power of the love of God, which demands that we live together in communion at every moment in a state of total, unreserved, unrestricted, unqualified, sacrificial love. That is the true character 
of spiritual communion in the body of Christ. Every member prepared to lay down our life for one another. And if that is the case, if we are prepared to give the ultimate sacrifice, then surely we are prepared to make lesser sacrifices. And the apostle goes on to talk about that in the next verse, verse 17. He says, if, if we love one another to the point of giving up our lives for one another, then surely it wouldn't make any sense that we're not prepared to sacrifice lesser things. Our comfort, our time, our worldly possessions, our energy, our attention for one another. The great 18th century composer George Frederick Handel wrote a very long oratorio on the story of Theodora and Didymus, kind of like the Messiah, but he, he wrote a whole musical piece about Theodora and Didymus, the martyrs. And at the end of that oratorio, there's a recitative singing of the death of the two martyrs. Their doom is past, and they are gone to prove that love is far stronger than death. And then after the death of Theodora and Didymus, the oratorio ends with a chorus of Christians, the church singing, and I paraphrase, O love divine, source of all fame, glory, and joy, let our souls be inflamed with your fire, and filled with your zeal. We have seen the beautiful streams of the love of Christ here below in the example of the martyrs. Let us come to know the spring, the source, the overflowing fountain and origin of that love. Let us come to know God in Christ. Didn't we sing about that in Psalm 36? All whom you to your feasts invite will drink from rivers of delight your precious love. We cherish the rivers of God's love. Pour from heaven, through the word, through the sacrament, into our hearts, into our souls, into our lives, and pours through us to one another and overflows into the world around us. That's the church in a world lost in hate. It is a glorious fountain overflowing with love. Oh, child of God, may the world see that in us. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that? The world will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. May the world say we have seen the streams of God's love flowing through God's children in this world, and we want to know where it comes from. We want to taste it. We want to be brought to come to know the fount, the origin from which these streams spring. We want to come to know God in Christ. May that be our prayer, brothers and sisters. And may that be what God grants to us as today. He feeds our hungry and thirsty souls 
with love from heaven. Amen.